Morning, church. Glad to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. We're going to look at the chapter uh, this morning. Last week we looked at uh, verse 1, but we're going to finish the chapter this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get a Bible right to your seat. I shared first service, I, uh, I read a story about a pastor trying to get a side job during the summer, so he decided to lifeguard. And, and the problem was that people were drowning in the pool that he was lifeguarding, and so they find it, went to find out and Every time someone would raise their hand because they were drowning, he would say, I see that hand. God bless you. <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> well, here we are, Revelation chapter 4. Think about John the Apostle. Here he is on the island of Patmos, banished, all alone, writing the words of Revelation being given to him by, by God himself. He had just written these words from Jesus to the church of Laodicea where he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And as he's writing these words down, suddenly a door is opened to John, and he's hurled into the presence of God. And this is where we pick it up. Look at verse uh, verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures having six wings were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The title of my message this morning is The Throne Room of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place this morning, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us, to instruct us in your word, Lord, to give us hope in the times in which we're living in, Lord, dark times in which we're living in, that that those that know you have the hope of heaven. We know where we're going. And Father, we do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you this morning, they're not born again today. Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, 
turn from their sin and turn to you this morning. So thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The old mountaineer had lived a full but not exactly saintly life, and now he was on his deathbed. He summoned his weeping wife, Sarah, he said, go to the fireplace and take the third stone from the top down. Well, she did as instructed. She said, reach in there, said her husband, and bring out what you find. Well, her fingers touched this large mason jar, and with some effort she pulled it up. The jar was full of cash. Sarah said to the old man, when I go, I'm going to take all that money with me. I want you to put that jar up in the attic by the window, and I'm going to grab it as I go make my way to heaven. Well, his wife follows his instructions faithfully. That night, the old mountaineer died. After the funeral, his wife remembered the mason jar and went to the attic. Well, there was that jar still full of money and by the window. Oh, she sighed. I knew I should have put it in the basement. Get it? Going up, going down. (laughs) A Gallup poll showed that 78% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. However, many of them do not know that receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is the only way to get to heaven. Many people have a wrong concept about heaven and they think that it's going to be a rather boring place. They say, oh yeah, it's going to be exciting when we first get to heaven, but after that initial excitement is over, what are we going to do? Just going to lay around on the clouds all day and playing harps for the rest of eternity and maybe watch these fat babies with wings flying around singing? I don't know. That's exactly what the devil would want you to think about heaven, that it's going to be boring. But from what I've read in the scriptures, it's going to be anything but boring. Heaven is going to be filled with adoration and worship and ecstasy and love for God and the saints and more worship of the Lamb of God. I don't believe there's going to be one dull moment when we get to heaven. My kids, when they were young, we used to sing the old salty song to them. uh, Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. And then we sing it all over again. And we sing that song. And I think we all need, in these days in which we live, a heavenly focus, a heavenly mindset. We need to be reminded as believers, we are going to heaven. We are going to heaven. Heaven is waiting. We need to be reminded that if you're a Christian, this world is not your home. We are citizens of heaven, first and foremost. And if you're a Christian, this world is as bad as it's going to get for you because once you enter eternity... It's going to be nothing but better. If you're not a Christian, then this world is as good as it's going to get because once you enter an eternity, it's all downhill from them. So then John takes us to heaven in the spirit because flesh and blood cannot stand before God and live. So we're there. You know, growing up in Southern California, back in the early days of Disneyland, when I was a kid, you, you paid a very small, you know, uh, general admission fee, like $2.50. And I think they've timed that by 100 now, but, but to get in. Then you had to buy a little coupon book to go with it. And you had the A, B, C, D, and E tickets. Well, you know, you, you used the, the E tickets up first because that was the best ride they had in the park. And the A's were like the, the worst rides, the, the boring ones, the ones you just sit down and you have to pay attention to. 
Here John gets an e-ticket ride to heaven. And what's the first thing that he catches his attention? Look at verse 2. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So he doesn't see Aunt Lucy or Uncle Bob. He's, he's not going, where are those people? I thought we were going to see my relatives. Where are they? Well, that'll come. But the first and foremost thing that he sees is this throne. And John wants us to know that when we get to heaven, all eyes are going to be on the one that sits upon that throne. In fact, the central object in heaven is the throne of God. It's referred to 14 times here in chapter 4, 5 times in chapter 5. It's a fixed point in heaven with everything else located in proximity to that throne. Now think about this. Remember, John is writing this, what he saw to a people at that time that were experiencing great persecution. They were suffering from the man who was sitting on his throne in Rome named Diocletian. And what does this do? Well, it reminds us, all of us, though we're going through hard times, difficult times, dark times, illnesses, hardships, death, that there is a throne in heaven and God is still on his throne. And one day we will be with him there in heaven. So keep your eyes on him who sits on the throne. John is fixated on the occupied throne and everything else is described in relation to that throne. And that's really... We're going to be doing the same thing this morning. If you're taking notes, our attention is going to be on three things. The person on the throne, number one. The people around the throne, number two. And the proclamation around the throne, number three. Number one, the person on the throne. Look at verse two again in verse three. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And I think at one time or another in all our lives, we've kind of wondered what God looked like. And no, he doesn't look like Morgan Freeman, regardless of the movies. The Apostle John here gives us, in verse 3, the real portrait of our God on his throne. Now understand, in the description of heavenly things, John does use a lot of symbols. However, not every, uh, everything is symbolic. Now, we need to keep in mind the nature of symbolism. The symbol is always less than the reality. Let me say that again. The symbol is always less than the reality. The reality of heaven is even greater than the description that we have of it here in, in uh, Revelation. These words of John cannot fully describe the complete beauty of our God because we're all limited in our understanding But John does the best he can. And he gives us a description of God on his throne using precious stones and jewels to describe him. It's kind of like if you go to the jewelry store and you're looking at at different stones, different jewels that you might maybe want to put in a necklace or in a ring. And that jeweler comes out and he puts his black velvet down on a piece of paper and he, he lays that jewel down upon that. That thing is just shining really, really bright compared to the darkness around here. Well, we know in God's presence, there is no darkness at all. In fact, John would write in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And there are those who say that 1 John was written after he penned the book of Revelation. And if that were the case, then John would fully know what he's talking about when he describes the brightness of our God. 
So John first begins describing what he sees as stones. There's three of them. The first one, he says, is a jasper stone, probably a clear stone like a diamond. Speaks of brilliance and the reflection of light. The second stone is a sardius stone, a blood red stone like a ruby. The third is, is emerald, a beautiful green stone that John describes what this rainbow looks like. Now, why would John describe these describe God these, these three with these three stones? Well, again, the diamond of the jasper is very bright; it shines bright. Think about the Book of Acts. When Saul became the Apostle Paul and gave his life to Jesus Christ, there it says on the road to Damascus, the glory of God shined brighter than the sun at noon. And that's pretty bright. So the jasper speaks of God's brilliance, God's glory again confirming what John had written, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Second stone we see here is a blood red sardius stone speaking of God's love displayed in the sun when Jesus shed his blood for our sins. In fact, Paul would talk about that in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On that cross, when they pierced Jesus' hands, where they put that nail through his feet, they placed the crown of thorns upon his head, thrust that spear into his side, God's blood flowed out from his veins. He was bleeding for you and for me. He had you on his mind. He had you on his heart. It was there on the cross that God proved how radically in love with you that he is. Now what's fascinating is that in Exodus 28, when we read of the high priests and what they wore and their garments, they had a breastplate that they would wear. And on that breastplate was 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the first of the 12 sons of Jacob was Reuben. And Reuben's name means behold or, or see a son. His stone was a sardius stone. And the last of the twelve sons was Benjamin, whose name means son of my right hand, or Benjamin's stone was a jasper. So if you put the, the meaning of these two stones together, you have, behold, the son of my right hand. So the one on the throne is none other than Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Although the one who is seated on the throne is God the Father, we need to understand on that throne is the triune God. Three persons of the Trinity are distinguished. God the Father in verse 3, God the Son in verse 2, God the Holy Spirit in verse 5. So we have the Trinity sitting upon the throne. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then John records in verse 3, there's a rainbow around the throne and an appearance like an emerald. Now, I've seen a lot of rainbows in my life. Maybe you have double rainbows, bright rainbows, you know, dim rainbows. But I've never seen a rainbow that looked like an emerald. I mean, how cool is that going to be? We know that rainbows are made up of seven, seven colors of the spectrum. So this, then it's a special kind of rainbow. Maybe the green just dominated and stood out, or maybe it was a very special green rainbow. Maybe it was like a green emerald flashing and a reflection of the other stones and just make it really bright. We don't know for sure, but this we know. We know what the rainbow means. It represents the grace of God. Grace of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, God said, I set my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God's way of saying, every time you see that rainbow, I will not destroy the earth again through water. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to destroy the earth again, but it's just he's not going to do it with water. We know we talked about this last Sunday, that God being a just God, must judge, and next time it's going to be by fire. But I think that the rainbow for us right now is a sign of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to His Word, faithful to His promise, faithful to His covenant, faithful in extending grace. 
Now that shouldn't surprise us that a rainbow would be around God's throne. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 4 verse 16 that God's throne is a throne of grace. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't think we can even imagine uh, the light show that John saw. I mean, could you imagine the most brilliant light you've ever seen shining through these three gems all at once? I can't wait to see it. But that's not all. One more picture we see around the throne. Drop down to verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we looked at the seven spirits of God already in, in reference to Isaiah 11, verse 2, and the sevenfold nature of God's spirit. But now we're looking at lightnings and we're looking at thunder and these things we remember that took place when Moses received the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. The mountain would shake constantly and there's great rumblings and thunders. It was covered by dark clouds and the, and the lightning flashing. It was so awesome of a sight that the people of Israel were stunned with fear. And they were given the law to follow, but instead we know they failed to do so. We know the law was given to point us to Jesus Christ. We can never follow the law completely, so God sent His Son who completely could and did obey every part of the law, the Ten Commandments. Because He was perfect in this life, He could give His life for us, taking on the penalty that we so rightly deserve. See, God is a holy God, and His command is to be holy just as He's holy, but we failed to do so. So God sent His Son out by believing in Christ, placing our faith and trust in Him. We can be forgiven. We can be made new. We can appear holy and righteous because, as we'll see, we're clothed in, in His righteousness. But to those who refuse to turn to Christ, refuse to repent of their sin, these sounds, lightnings, and thunderings, and voices, they represent the judgment of God about to take place upon the earth. And we know from chapters 6 to 19, we'll be reading of judgment after judgment as God at last turns from grace to judgment. Listen, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, God has been a gracious God, appealing to people to open their hearts, to turn from their sin, and turn to His truth and in love, to have them stop the direction they're going in sin and selfishness, and turn to Him in repentance and dependency. But when men continue to sin and go on and on and on in sin, God, as we looked at last week, must judge. He's going to say, enough is enough. I mean, that's what this book is about. It tells us how God at last visits judgment upon the people. I recently read that Pastor Chuck Swindoll's first theological statement that he could ever remember was spoken to him by his own dear mother when he was just a little boy. Ten words he says that he would not soon forget. He would never forget. She, had, she said to him on one occasion, May God help you if you ever do that again. <laughs> I think many of them have said that to their kids. But in a sense, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's God carrying out his last warning to mankind to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. And this brings us to point number two, the people around the throne. Back up to verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So we see that there just isn't one throne in which God is sitting in His brilliant, shining, diamond, ruby, emerald glory. But there's other thrones. Now that's very interesting to me because it means that somebody has been coronated here. Somebody has been elevated here to a throne. Somebody is sitting alongside Jesus Christ, alongside God. 
John says on the throne, they saw 24 elders sitting. Who were these 24 elders? Now, commentators debate whether they're glorified human beings or angelic beings. I don't see how they can be angelic beings because it certainly seems to me to represent God's people. Elders in Scripture represent the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. Never do we read of angels being called elders, especially since angels, they never age. Greek word for elders here is the word presbyteros, where we get our English word Presbyterian from. Reminds me of a story about a little girl who came home from her Presbyterian Sunday school class. And her mother asked her why, what they talked about. Well, she said, we talked about heaven. Well, what did they say about it? Her mother asked. The teacher said that there were only 24 Presbyterians in heaven. Get it? Presbyterians? Okay. Some say these 12, uh, 24 are the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and 12 apostles of the New Testament. But then John would be seeing himself. So I don't know if that's really the case. So who are they? Well, if you look at the song that they sing, look at the lyrics of that song, there's only one group that could sing these lyrics. And that's church people because it's a song of redemption. Angels can't sing that. Angels, they, they've not been redeemed. You can turn over a page to chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It tells us when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, 24 elders again, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Only one group can sing that song. That's the church. Like the old praise songs we used to sing, you know, again, when my kids were young. I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been washed. I've filled with the Holy Ghost. Today, and my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. Just a song of redemption. We sing songs of redemption. I think of uh, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone by Chris Tomlin. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me, has redeemed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. So as soon as we are raptured, as soon as we are taken to heaven, however we get there, by death or by rapture, but once we're in heaven, we are going to be so consumed by the vision of our glorious God upon His throne that our immediate response is going to be praise and worship. We will want to break forth in praise for all that God has done. It's been said there's going to be three surprises you'll find in heaven. Number one, who's there? Number two, who's not there? And number three, that you are there. <laughs> I've always liked that. First of all, who's not there? You know, well, we're so-and-so. I thought for sure they'd be here. Nope. Look at some other folks. Uh, how did you get here? You're the last person I ever thought I'd see here. Surprise. And then surprise of all surprises, you're there. But you're going to say, oh, but I'm redeemed by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So while there is tribulation on earth in chapters 6 through 19, there's adoration and praise and worship in chapters 4 and 5. 
Now, I also believe this represents the church because it coincides with what, with what Jesus wrote to the seven churches. To the overcomers, he said in Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And again, there in verse 4 of chapter 4, we read that they were also clothed in white robes and had crowns of gold on their heads. We also know in Revelation 3 verse 5 that Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments. White garments represent the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're clothed with the crown. Represents, uh, gold represents the crowns that we're promised to believers for certain actions. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that one day, as believers, uh, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. We will be judged or rewarded for, for our deeds and our, and our motives. Now, did we certainly deserve uh, serve unselfishly, or are we promoting ourselves? And there's going to be crowns rewarded accordingly. The Bible speaks of five crowns available to you and I while we're still on this earth. First is the incorrupt, incorruptible crown given uh, compared to a corruptible one for those that run the, the race, run for the prize. That is, uh, the Lord is going to give uh, that to a disciplined life in serving the Lord according to 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Then is the crown of righteousness given to those who love his appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Then is the crown of rejoicing given to those who lead others to Christ, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. Fourth crown is the crown of glory to those under shepherds, those pastors who feed the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And fifth is the crown of life given to those who love the Lord and are faithful to him. Two places, James 1, 12 and Revelation 2, verse 10. What are we going to do with these crowns? Well, notice what the elders do with their crown. Drop down to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crown before the throne. I've heard Christians say, well, when I arrive in heaven, I'm just going to be glad that I'm there. I'm not going to worry about my reward or any crown like that. You know, that's a very short-sighted perspective. Imagine yourself in heaven you see the king, you see the nail prints in his hands, you see the nail prints in his feet, the scars on his brow, you're overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for you. Expressing your gratitude is now going to be your utmost desire. Then out of the corner of your eye, you see these elders casting their crowns down at their feet. And you think, man, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast my crown. And you have no crown. How frustrating that would be to finally have the opportunity to give Jesus a little of the love he's given you and to find yourself empty-handed. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. Gaining crowns by serving Jesus isn't a selfish activity. It's ultimately an act of worship. And that brings us to our final point, number three, the proclamation around the throne. This gets a little bit bizarre. Look at verses six through eight. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, the first thing we hear proclaimed around the throne are these words from, from, some, from, from some very bizarre-looking creatures. I mean, they're, first, they're full of eyes in front and in back. 
They got six wings and faces like a lion, a calf, an eagle, and a man. Very bizarre. What are these beings? I haven't got a clue. No, no. We, we, we do have a clue. We, we have a clue. Because when we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, we can get a picture of who these creatures are. Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 clearly identifies these creatures as cherubim. If you recall in the description of the tabernacle, which is the picture of the heavenly scene, the Lord is described as dwelling between the cherubim. Those are the beings above the ark uh, with their wings stretched out. So singular a cherub is some sort of angelic being. And if you also recall, Satan, before being cast out of heaven, was called in Ezekiel 28, the anointed cherub who covers. So it's seen that these are some sort of angelic beings. Now from our perspective, these beings seem quite bizarre. But in heaven, it's going to be quite normal. I mean, think of it this way. What would it be like to describe an elephant to someone who's never seen an elephant before? Well, it's this great big blob of flesh. It's massive, but it's got this little head. But it's got these huge paper-like thin ears that almost look like wings, but they, they don't fly. It's got this, this big, long nose. It's called a trunk, but it's not really a trunk. It, it actually works like a hand, so it can pick up things like, like as small as a peanut, but it can knock things over like a huge tree trunk with it. On top of that, the trunk is used in the same way you or I use our hands. And its legs, well, they look like these massive, huge, big tree stumps. They're massively huge. But in the very end of this creature, this little skinny tail with this little hairy ball on the end of it, you'd be going, that is weird. I can't imagine what it looks like. You take that person to the zoo and you go, oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Same way when we get to heaven and we see these creatures, it's not going to be bizarre to us anymore. We're going to go, man, this makes sense. It says there, the ones full of eyes in front and in back, speaking of discernment and knowledge. Six wings speaks of soaring strength and speed in which they travel about. The face of a lion speaks of power. The calf represents humility and serving the Lord. The eagle also represents their service to God with the, the swiftness of eagles' wings. And finally, a man represents intelligence. It shows that they're rational beings. But notice what they're, what they're proclaiming in verse 8. They do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Why do the cherubim say, Holy, holy, holy? Because God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word holy means to be separate, set apart, different, unique. There is no one like our God. He stands distinct from all of His creation and majesty. God is almighty. These creatures stress first God's utter removal from anything that's corrupt, anything that's evil. That's what holiness is. Secondly, they stress the unchanging eternal character of God, who was and is and is to come. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, our final point of what is being proclaimed from around the throne is worship. That's what's happening here. Look now at verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him 
who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. It's a very heartfelt, powerful song of praise and worship and adoration. They're not just going through the motions. True spiritual Worship is perhaps one of the greatest needs in our individual lives today and in our churches today. Worship means to ascribe worth. It means to, do, to use all that we are and to have to praise God for all that He is and all that He does. And no one is more worthy of all our praise and all of our honor and, and power and praise than our Lord. Listen, heaven is a place of worship. And God's people shall worship Him throughout eternity. There's A.W. Tozer who said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Jesus said in speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, said to her in John 4.23, But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The Father is seeking true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. To say we must worship God in spirit means, among other things, it must originate from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all He's done for us. Worship cannot be formalistic or or, or mechanical. Not just going through the motions. I mean, how would you like it if every time you said to your spouse you love them, they said it like a computer voice? I love you. I mean, some of you might say, I would appreciate it because he doesn't say it at all, so I don't care how he says it. Well, in the same way, when we worship the Lord, it needs to be without heartfelt commitment and faith and love and zeal. The word spirit there also in John 4.23 may be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul said concerning Christian worship in Philippians 3, verse 3, that we worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. See, it's the Holy Spirit who awakens our understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It's the Holy Spirit who stirs us to celebrate and to rejoice and to give thanks. It's the Holy Spirit who opens up our eyes to see and savor all that God is for us in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who I hope and pray leads and guides our services and leads us in corporate praise of our great God. But then Jesus also says true worship comes from those who not only worship in spirit, but they also worship in truth. Worship must be in truth. Here are these elders with their crowns, casting them before the Lord, are worshiping in truth. They're speaking truth in what they're saying. Verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That is truth. Worshiping in truth obviously means that our worship must line up with the Word of God. If it's words that describe who God is and what He's like, it has to be what it says in God's Word, what He's done for us. But the bottom line is, Our worship must be rooted and tethered to biblical truth. May we never worship songs that that speak of heresy. Genuine, Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally ground and focused on the truth of all we know of our great God. 
Paul writes in Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are true, meditate on these things. See, to worship inconsistently with what's revealed to us in Scripture ultimately leads to idolatry. Now, there are some who prefer to worship only in spirit, but they can care less about the truth. In fact, as they're focusing, they think focusing on truth has the potential to quench the spirit. And the success for which they judge worship is the thrills and the chills. And did you feel that? That was the experience. Now, make no mistake about it. Worship that doesn't engage and around our emotion, arouse our emotions and affections, I think is worthless. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 15, 8, criticized the worship of the religious leaders in his day when he said this, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. True worship engages the heart, the affections, the, the totality of our being. But any affection or feeling or emotion stirred up by error or false doctrine is worthless. Then you got the other side of the coin. There are those that only prefer to worship in truth. And they're actually offended when they or others feel any sort of experience or heightened emotion. I read of one evangelical pastor that said, I often wish that we wouldn't sing or have music, but I could simply see and say the words or the lyrics that express biblical truth. I don't like being distracted by the emotions that rise up in me when we sing to musical accompaniment. That's horrible. That's horrible. By all means, let us sing only what is true, but let us do so with affection and feeling and heart and emotion. I like the way Pastor John Piper puts it. He puts it this way. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates a shallow people who refuse a disciple of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. I like that. If the truth of God's word causes you to worship and lift your hands and stand and sing with all your heart and sway back and forth, then God bless you. If the truth of God's word leads you to sit in solemn reverence as you praise and worship our God, then by all means, sit and worship. May God bless you. But let's make sure in either case we are worshiping both spirit and in truth for such people our Father is seeking. Again, it's what we're going to be doing for all eternity anyway. Verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. You might memorize those words now so when we get there you've got to head start on everybody else. Listen, heaven's going to be a place of worship. And God's people will worship Him throughout all eternity and we should start now. I want to close with this. It's virtually impossible for us, even in our wildest dreams, to imagine the splendor and the beauty and the awesomeness of heaven. But the best thing of all about heaven is that we're finally going to be with Jesus, with our Savior. Jesus told us in John 14, 2 and 3, I go and prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. It really doesn't matter what heaven is like, as long as Jesus is there. And with that said, heaven is going to be a far better place than anything you or I have ever experienced. To still a quote from a movie, take the best moment you've had in your life, multiply it by infinity, 
take it to the depth of forever, and you'll still have barely a glimpse of what the glories of heaven will be like. Jesus says, I'm going to come to receive you to myself. He didn't say, I'm going to come and take you to myself, but receive you to myself. Jesus is not going to take us against our will, but he's going to return for those that are waiting and watching for him. Sadly, many will be left behind. As Jesus said, one will be taken and the other will be left in Matthew 24, 40. Now, one of the saddest things, and maybe you've heard this, I've heard people say, well, why would I want to go to heaven? None of my friends are going to be there. Listen, you may not have any friends in heaven, and you may have some friends in hell, but you will know it. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, hell is described as a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, picture darkness so dark that you can't see your hand right in front of your face. People go crazy in that kind of darkness. Listen, people aren't going to see their friends in hell. They may hear them, though. They're going to hear their moanings and their groanings and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Man, that thought alone should give you the heebie-jeebies, the chills. Compare that to those that know Jesus and spend eternity with Jesus where the brightness that's going to be there. And we're told in his presence there are pleasures forevermore. Man, what a choice. One final story, and we're going to close with this. In 1899, two famous men died in America. Both men had similarities in, 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 in their lives. Both were raised in Christian homes. Both were skilled orators. Both traveled extensively. They were both widely respected. Both drew immense crowds when they spoke and attracted loyal followings. But there was one difference between them, their view of God. One was an unbeliever who had made a career out of attacking the Bible and the Christian faith. His name was Robert Ingersoll. To him, the Bible was a fable, an obscenity, a humbug, a sham, and a lie. He died suddenly, and it devastated his family. His body was kept in the home for several days because his wife could not bear to part with it. It was finally removed because the corpse was decaying and endangering the health of the family. Finally, the body was cremated, and the public's response to his passing was altogether dismal. When death came for Robert Ingersoll, there was no hope, only despair. In the same... <laughs> Just a second. I'm coming to the best part. I should have had that in my notes. Thank you for covering that for me. In the same year, evangelist D.L. Moody died. And his death was triumphant for himself and his family. Moody had been in poor health for some time and his family, they were coming in and taking turns being with him. On the morning of his death, who was standing by the bedside heard him exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. You are dreaming, Father, the son said. Moody answered, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. I love that. For a while it seemed as if Moody was reviving, but he began to slip away again. He said, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. By this time his daughter was present, and she began to pray for his recovery. He said, No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Shortly after that, Moody was, was received up into heaven. At the funeral, the family and friends joined a joyful service. They spoke. They sang hymns. They heard these words proclaimed from 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your sting? 
Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moody's death was a part of that victory. Listen, heaven is going to be a wonderful place. You'll never be bored. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never look back. And the best thing of all, Jesus is going to be there. The little boy who was going to get a dog for his birthday, he was taken to the pet store where he was allowed to see several dogs. And the one he picked was the one that was wagging his tail furiously. When asked why he picked that one, he said, I wanted the one with the happy ending. (laughs) When God lays out the possibilities of where we can spend eternity, I'm going to pick the one with the happy ending. And that's what God reveals to us here in the book of Revelation. Two endings. A happy one for those who receive Christ as their Savior. A horrifying one for those who reject Christ. Understand the promise of heaven is a promise only to the child of God. Only those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can enter in. And if you receive Him, man, that's where you're going to spend eternity. How about you here this morning? Do you know that you know for sure without a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today that you would go into the presence of God for all eternity? I pray that if you don't, you would not leave here without making that commitment to follow Jesus Christ, to surrender your heart and life to Him. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. Lord, thank You for giving us a glimpse of heaven because, Lord, we can look at this earth right now and we see it's not looking good. And, Lord, we can say as we, we read over and over again, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But now we're even more excited because we see what it's going to be like with you in heaven, where we can worship you, Lord. In your presence, there's, there, there's, there's, there's joy forevermore, pleasures forevermore. You are such a good, good Father, Heavenly Father. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here in this room that's not convinced, Lord, if they were to die, that they would go to heaven, they would be with you for eternity. Maybe they've never surrendered their hearts and life to you. They're not born again today, Lord. Would you touch their heart? Help them to see their need for you. Help them to make that commitment this morning. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again this morning? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. God bless you. I see your hand. Anybody else? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to make that commitment to Jesus Christ? Let's just repeat this prayer for you that raised your hand. And for all of us, we want to pray this prayer because it's a great prayer to pray anyway. Let's pray together. Just repeat after me. God, I'm sorry for my sin. But I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for every sin I ever committed. Jesus, come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I am now going to heaven and that I am now a child of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Remember as we close, God is still on His throne and soon and very soon we're going to see Him face to face. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.